0: On this week's episode of the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, poet and author Morgan Lipart and I have a discussion about how you can write publisher-ready poetry. We cover a number of topics in this discussion that was originally broadcast on Instagram Live. I hope you like our discussion. Uh, but uh, while people are joining, let's introduce ourselves. So my name is James Boarhead. I'm poet laureate of Dublin, California. I'm the author of Portraits of Red and Gray, love that cover. And the author of Canvas. And, and, and I loved reading Morgan's books. I'll hand over to Morgan, Barefoot and Running.
1: Hi everybody, I'm a poet living in Colorado, and I am the author of Barefoot and Running, as James said. It's a poetry book about our connection with nature and the healing power of nature. Um, my work has been published all over the world at this point, in literary magazines and journals. And I am so happy to be here with you guys today.
0: Very excited to talk about it. We both had wonderful experiences and we've also had many, many, many rejections. So we felt all the feels that, uh, that everyone is joining has felt at some, at some time. So we're gonna talk, go through a whole bunch of topics that we've thought about ahead of time. We'll read a couple of things along the way. But why don't we uh, start? by how you get started, you know, what are the prompts, memories, how do you battle writer's block? So maybe uh, Morgan, what do you get started? What do you do to get started when you got that, that terrifying empty space to fill in?
1: The best way for me to fill that empty space with my creativity is to read other poets, mm-hmm. other poetry. Um, it can give you ideas for voice, but also um, something that I love is using one of their poems as an inspiration, and you kind of like call in response with that poem. Like for instance, I uh, I know Sylvia Plath has a really famous poem. It's one of the last pieces she ever wrote, and I wanted to follow up on that and be like, no, like I don't want that to be the end of your story. And so I wrote a part two. And Ocean Bong has an amazing poem. It's one of my favorites, um, called "Someday I'll Love Ocean Vuong," and I wrote a follow up to that Um, because it inspired me because the poem feels about, feels like it's about making peace with your past and like really making peace with who you are as a person. And I wanted to speak to that topic in a different kind of way, um, in my own personal way So reading poetry um, can really jumpstart you.
0: That's so true. And I saw, I was fortunate to see Billy Collins perform in San Francisco recently, and he mentioned that you should read poets that uh, you're jealous of, that you read their poetry and you're just yearning to be able to write as well as they can. And it's not like you're trying to imitate them, although painters, uh, when they're learning the skill of painting, because all of these things are skills that that are not innately there, you have to learn them. Imitation is, and copying famous works is one of the ways in which painters learn the skills. Uh, so uh, I love A.E. Stallings and, and the way she's able to incorporate rhyme and formal structures into her poetry so elegantly, uh, you know, it challenged me to try to do that a little bit myself, even though it's not my, it's not the place, the place I go to naturally. And uh, yeah, Billy Collins said, you know, read people you're jealous of and then you'll find your voice along the way. It is important that you find your own voice along the way, but getting there doesn't mean you won't, you'll ignore every other influence. You'll, you'll pay attention to those. As well, in terms of writer's block, um, actually, before we get to writer's block, uh, I, I'm going to tee up uh, another idea for you: is poems, and I think poetry uniquely doesn't have to be big, complex uh, Game of Thrones ideas and plots. Uh, it's the opposite of that, and it can start from very, very simple things. So, um, most of this is going to be a discussion, but Morgan and I are going to sprinkle in a few things here and there. So, I will read one short poem that from my from my new book that started with a really, really, really simple observation. And I think that's important to keep in your mind. Poetry does can start with very simple things. So I'm going to read a short poem, uh, Lost and Found, from uh, my my new book, porch of Red and Gray. So there you go. All right, Lost and Found. I nudge my reading glasses, appropriate. I nudge my reading glasses down, watching you rummage through drawers, My glasses, where did I leave my glasses? You repeat to yourself, hoping for an answer. I quietly observe this well-scripted, tightly performed scene on the family room stage as your fingers fumble until in exasperation you set down your book and walk away. These things we lose track of, a puzzle piece clinging to a sweaty forearm, an unpaid bill, the anniversary card bought last week, a set of rings all tucked away too safely. I worry most of all about the pages ripped from a daily calendar on my desk, then crumpled and thrown away one day closer to a final tear. Perhaps next time I should offer you my reading glasses, then lie back, eyes closed, and dream of all the things I've lost or forgotten until in the quiet of night, I find what I was looking for. So that poem literally started with me sitting on my couch and my wife was going, where are heck going my reading glasses? Just this tiny little thing. And I thought about it and uh, I had to do, the poem had to be more than just that. And I thought about well, all these things you lose track of. And then it started to become a poem. But poems can start from very simple things. And Morgan, I'm sure you have examples of that too, where something that is so simple and personal became something more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think a poem starts, For me as this still small feeling in my chest. It's a simple emotion. It's something that doesn't quite feel right. And then I write the poem as a way to get it out of my body and try to figure out what it's telling me. Like it has its own story. I just have to listen to it. There's a Robert Frost quote that I love that says, a poem begins as a lump in the throat, a sense of wrong, a homesickness, a lovesickness, It is never a thought to begin with. It is at its best when it's a tantalizing vagueness. And then through a poem, it finds its thought. And then the thought finds the words. So- Mm,
0: Love that, love that, a great quote.
1: Yeah. So I have a piece to read um, that kind of marries these two ideas about a poem starting as a small emotion and then also a poem being an echo of a poem that you admire so this is my poem after ocean bomb it's called someday i'll love morgan lipheart hmm. and this is the first time i've ever reading it so you've Oh excited have- i'm excited to hear this
0: cool yeah okay
1: morgan are you locked your body is a long door even you don't know where it goes morgan are you afraid you're a chunk of quartz of granite. You may sink in this river, but the current will still take you home. Morgan, your name is just the crunch of a dozen dead roses until your mother calls it. I hope she never stops calling it. Remember those arms are just arms until they reach for something greater. Morgan, are you listening? The sound of crying is just people trying to let go. Morgan, Morgan, the most necessary parts of your body are your palms on your belly, opening in forgiveness. Someday I'll love Morgan with art. Someday this name, this body will mean more than just a plot of bare earth where beautiful things could grow.
0: Mm. Snap, snap, clap, clap, beautiful. Beautiful. I'm excited about that I didn't realize you're gonna be something brand new that's so cool awesome Well I think another um, another thing that we've all experienced on point is writer's block and uh, and Morgan's uh, shared a few things I'd like to share one more which is if you're really stuck just go somewhere you haven't been before go to a museum, go for a walk. Or in my case, an extreme example, I could feel writer's block coming. It didn't, it didn't hadn't quite arrived, but I could sense it almost like the I could see the well was starting to get near the bottom. And so uh, i always I love ghost towns. So I did this six-hour each way uh, trip road trip to a ghost town in California up in the mountains. a Beautiful drive. So it was not a boring twelve-hour round trip. And then the ghost town was spectacular and I had a feeling I would get something out of it and I did and that actually got that poem got placed Ghosts of Bodie California and um that uh just that just that chance the long drive I knew would free up my head and then and then seeing something as spectacular as what I saw I just knew I'd find something there and I did uh that's not always going to happen but I think that just breaking up your routine I asked uh the, the musician Saint Vincent uh I had a chance to ask her a question at an event and and she said, "Well, I'm going to have writer's block. Well, just go somewhere you've been before, is what she does. So I think it really does; it can really help. It just gives uh, your your brain something else to chew on. Yeah, change
1: scenery, mixes up thoughts.
0: Love it. Cool. All right. So another another area of discussion would is uh, poetic forms. What form does a poem take? So Morgan, why don't you start there and think about how, what's your process for finding discovering the form of your poem?
1: Yeah." Um, I am mostly a free-form poet. I learned in college all the different forms, and free-form is just what works for me because I don't want to be limited on the page. I felt, like, restricted and in a box um, when I wasn't doing free-form. But there are a stunning amount of forms that you can choose for your poem. And I think researching and learning all of them and then picking your favorites as probably the best way for you to start out so you know your options and can find out kind of what works for you um, but there are just so many different options um, let's see there's free form, which I discussed there's a prose poem which I know you have an example of uh, which is more of a paragraph on a page and it looks like a piece of fiction but it's much shorter and you have to have very crafted language in order to turn a prose poem into an actual you know, poem. Um, there's also special formatting where it's winding across the page, you're making a shape. There's classic quatrains with A, B, A, B, rhyming stanzas. Um, and I know we'll get into rhyming in a minute. That's a whole can of words. Um, concrete poems, there's just so many forms to choose from.
0: Yeah, and I think that uh, I, I do a podcast, by the way, as well, which folks might enjoy the Felix Wings poetry podcast. And I've had a chance to interview a whole series of amazing poets, including Morgan. Terrific interview with Morgan is out there. You can hear more of her work. And I interviewed A.E. Stallings, who is a wonderful poet, who's, who she is into rhyming and structured forms in a way that I, like Morgan, I'm more free verse person um, with a little bit of structure here and there. And for her... She starts with the form and then does the poem and feels like it removes the decision. It's totally the opposite of how I work. I I write images without any thought of how they're formed, and then the form of the poem emerges. So two thoughts about that. Um, The first thought is I've had poems completely change their form. So I had a poem about a trip to Normandy years ago that's in my book that was originally written as a very strict same number of syllables per line rhyming scheme extremely structured it just didn't work it came off sounding too sing song it came off sounding too forced i but i love the underlying story i was trying to tell idea i was trying to convey and then uh, my younger daughter said hey you got this other poem that uses this screenplay format maybe try it with that and I rewrote it completely, and it's kind of a prose poem. But I'll all hold it up. It's structured uh, like, let me make sure I'm like, yeah, Normandy in 19th. It's structured like a screenplay. Inside that, there's still little rhymes here and there. There's still little hints of what it was before, but it, now it works. Now the, the form of the poem matched what I was trying to say. So think form is very intentional. It matters. And actually another Billy Collins quote, he said, uh, prose is about filling the page with words. Poems is about the page is silent and you're displacing the silence with words. And I just love that, that image. So when, so everything with poem, the way it looks, the way the words are placed, the displacement, that silence, everything is intentional, which is what makes poetry so awesome. Every word, every space is intentional. Maybe, maybe talk about that, Morgan, how you kind of go through that journey of images, ideas, and then you visualize it on the page.
1: yeah every word has to earn its place in a poem. If you don't feel like it's doing work, then you have to cut it. And that's um, where you get this blank, beautiful space to play with. And we've been reciting some poems and when you have a poetry book or you publish a poem, you don't get to necessarily recite that to the reader. And so the blank space gets to do that job for you of pausing Of putting emphasis on things. For instance, if there's a line, if you guys can see, you know, there's blank space here, and that gives this last word more weight and lets you pause before going on to the next stanza. And that's how you effectively use blank spaces when you're you don't have the chance to actually spoon feed the audience the way you want the poem to sound and feel. So. Um, Spacing and formatting, very intentional. And my poetry professor in college, Professor Stein, recommended um, trying at least two or three different forms for a poem before you decide it's done. Just give it a shot. Make it into the shape of a bird or something. (laughs) Um, If it's really long, try cutting it up and making it very, very short stances with lots of blank space. Just see kind of what the poem wants to do and what's more effective. Just give it a try, low stakes, low stakes, just trying it out. Um, So uh, that is definitely an exercise that can take your poetry to the next level.
0: You know, another technique that was recommended by uh, a poet that I work with is to give your poem to somebody who hasn't read it before and have them read it out loud without reading it once. So they're reading it bold. And then see where they get tripped up. Um, you don't want you you don't want poetry to be so instructive that it's you know linear and locked into one thing. On the other hand, you don't want the user or the the reader to be confused and stumbling when there's something intentionally you want them to get. And that might mean you need a little bit of punctuation added. You might need to do some enjambment. You might need to do some indents. There might be things you need to do to help the reader navigate the poem uh, while still leaving it open to many different ways of interpretation. And then, uh, you know, another example of a concrete poem, which is not something I've done a couple of them, but it's not something I do too much, is in in Ports of Red and Gray, I had this, uh, which was mainly about a trip I took to the Soviet Union in 1983. Uh, I had this circus, little circus poem. It was this light little thing, pretty short. And I decided to visualize it as a spiral because uh, the other forms just weren't working. But as soon as I did that, it it really came to life. Um, And it was still this slight little short little poem that the visual of it was as much about the poem as as just the words.
1: Yeah, the visual can create an extra layer of meaning. Mm -hmm. Before uh, a reader even looks at it, they have a feeling about it. Or before a reader even reads it, they have a feeling about it the page. Like I have a poem in, my book barefoot and running that is the shape of a bird and um, that does a lot of work for me bringing the nature theme in getting you to think about the shape of a bird flying in the sky and its wings out before you even read the poem that's named starling that's about a bird coming out of a nest and in that brief moment right when they leave and jump into the air. You're not sure if they're falling or flying. And then at the end of the poem, she flew instead of fell. So just the form does a lot of work for you.
0: Just one more example that from my first book, Canvas is. Uh, I took two. I had two poems that weren't quite working, and I threw them out and took phrases from them and glued them together and created a new thing. And I heard a Tibetan singing bell somewhere, and I thought, "Oh, that's a cool sound and image." So I wanted it to be really zenny. So it needed to look zany. So I, when I decided it needed to be visualized like this, um, then I had this interesting challenge of reworking the words to fit into this structure that I thought was visually so striking. And that was really, really fun. And still have it be a poem, because another poet I talked to said, you have to be careful that the form doesn't overwhelm the poem. Whether that's a very constrained form like a sestina, or a sonnet, you know, if if the reader is trying to untangle, what form is this? Like it's some sort of word puzzle, then the form has overwhelmed the poetry and you have to be really cautious about that. In fact, ideally the same poet said, really good use of form is you don't even notice it's, notice there's a form there except for concrete, which is very visual, but you don't notice the form until a third, a second or third reading. And then you go, oh, that's interesting. Kind of like uh, Morgan said, just visually seeing the poem is one experience and then you read it and you get a second. Um, so yeah, that that kind of leads into rhyming. So why don't you start with that, Morgan, since both of us are a little similar on this topic, but what, what are your thoughts about, about rhyming and really structured form?
1: I think with rhyming, especially in those classically formatted poems, like that ABAB structure I mentioned previous, it can overwhelm the poem. I feel like it's so hard so hard to do that um it's almost more difficult to pull it off and it feels like it should be easier because you've got the form in front of you all you have to do is like fill in the blank but it's so difficult to pull off because you have to find a way to add the element of surprise and not bore the reader to get the reader to um actually be engaged and not be like oh i know they're gonna rhyme fear with deer next i know where this is going like you have to really have think the freshest content if you're going to use heavy-handed rhyming and use those more classic structures like you've just got to wow somebody with your content Um, and rhyming specifically I don't do a lot of rhyming it's kind of a little bit uh, becoming a little bit less popular in modern poetry I think the free-form unrhyming structure is becoming kind of the mainstream thing in the last several. Probably decades. <laughs> um, but a cool thing that you can play with in a poem is internal rhyme or like slanted rhyme or just like playing with language and the way it feels in your mouth. Like uh, I do have an example and several examples in Barefoot and Running, that title poem of my book. So if that's okay, I'll give that a read and then at the end I'll kind of point out the ways I played with language. Barefoot and Running. You have a second-hand wilderness inside you, my great-grandmother warned, Braids sliding down her back and a cloud of smoke hanging from her lips. When I think of her, I smell mahogany and pressed wildflowers inside encyclopedias. I feel cool mud from kneeling over her in the ground knowing she was right. She spit fire and tobacco. Her voice was a dusty gravel road, a dream catcher of the stars. The one court that told me I could be unconquerable. Now my heritage is a dead language. There is no Rosetta Stone for the unrest written in my bones. My breath begs questions. I invent words, she would say. We are not stone women. No, we are soft and earthy like clay. They can't break clay. We curve, we twist, but we can never break. I can feel her in the texture of my waking dreams when I am running, running, out of breath, running barefoot beneath the pines with white lightning heat and wet earth kicking between my toes across the border of ourselves we women like wild horses up the feet barefoot and running so, so a few yeah. that i did in there um wildflowers inside encyclopedias right mm-hmm. that's, it plays with language in a way that's really um, Into to the ear, but it's not technically a rhyme. Um, It's not like, you know, I went down to the store, it was a bore, like it doesn't have cadence, um, but you're kind of playing with it and you're planting it in the stanzas in unexpected ways. Another one is the one chord that told me I could be unconquerable. So that K sound is making its way in this line Um, Two different ways that kind of creates this repetition that's really pleasing to the ear. Also, Rosetta Stone, Unrest Written in My Bones. Just playing with those sounds makes poetry really interesting. It's really fun to do. And something that shows up a lot in my poetry and even more in my fiction work. And I just can't help it. But um, it's several words that start with the same letter. It just shows up like my breath begs questions. Um, and that repetition, so long as it's not obnoxious, it can be really interesting um, and creates this little pattern, these little patterns in your poem that's unexpected because it's not traditional form and people aren't necessarily expecting ABAB patterns or any sort of pattern.
0: You know, another another thing I, in, with A. Stallings, and I, we had a question earlier, and I'm trying, trying to keep an eye on those, that uh, yes, the podcast is called the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Morgan A.E. Stallings, Olivia Gatwood. I've interviewed an incredible group of poets, more of that coming. But the one of the points that A.E. Stallings made when I was asking her about the use of structured forms and rhyming is a risk is if you only read the classics, which are important, but be careful, if you only read classical Victorian poets and the way that they wrote and rhymed, you're not going to sound very modern if that's what you're imitating. So there are poets, modern poets, less so. It is definitely less popular now, but if there are modern poets who incorporate rhyme and structure, and you want to incorporate reading a lot of them so that your things you're learning from are somewhat modern. And then uh, I think that I'll read one very short poem from Portraits in a second here, where there's structure can, doesn't need to be, free verse can still have structure. It's just that structure is is perhaps novel, something brand new. So this short poem from Portraits of Red and Gray, this trip I took, uh, that covers this trip I took to the Soviet Union years ago. Number 15, this is actually, uh, this was actually turned into composition, uh, was set to music for a soprano a number of years ago. Uh, number 15 from Portraits of Red and Gray. Sipping tea in Samarkand, a nestled perch on concrete stilts, an eerie cove in shadows glow from sunlight seeping patterned walls, open air, a warmer breeze so strangely whispers this hidden space on kneeling mats and wooden slats, a simple teacup held in place. You'll notice a couple of things there. I do have some rhyme space place. mats slash mats is not at the end of the line. I think you want to, you know, if you're rhyming, what you don't want is da 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 rhyme. Another thing, uh, <Ċício> A. Stalling said is well, you want to try to avoid wherever possible monosyllabic monosyllabic rhymes where it's single word rhyme, single word rhyme, or the same number of syllables. Throw in some slant rhymes, ways to just break it up so that it's not obvious to the reader. And then they're playing this game of trying to guess fill in the blank. I think that was another, that's what I heard from another poet. You don't want your poem to become a fill in the blank exercise where the reader is trying to anticipate the word. Then they've totally lost the, the poetry and it's now become a puzzle. All right. Um, yeah, sorry, yeah.
1: Um, and holding up to the camera that poem you just read so we can get a visual sense of that format.
0: Oh. Yes. Yes. Give me just a second here to find it. There we go. Very simple, centered, very elegant, and a rare. I think I've written two poems in my life that were basically fell out of me and were unedited, and, um, which feeds, feeds into our next topic. That was a rare case. I wish that happened every time. It doesn't. It happens like once in a decade. Uh, it just sort of appeared in my mind that I couldn't write it down as fast enough. All right, so let's talk about when is a poem done, Revi- editing, revision. Um, Morgan, why don't you start us off on this topic?
1: Oh, man. Um, I am a big fan of putting a poem away and not looking at it for several weeks or several months and then coming back to it later because it gives you a fresh eye for it, but it also since my poems are so emotional, it gives me a fresh, emotional, clean slate. So I'm no longer in that feeling that I was in when I wrote the poem. So a few months later, I can look at it and see it for what it actually is. See it for the words on the page instead of feeding into myself of like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, for instance, so sad. Oh yes, this poem is so sad. Um, Like you can really get to see the emotional resonancy of the poem and see if it works. Um, mm-hmm. I think a poem is done when you reread it all that time later, and you have the emotional response that you were intending to create in the reader. So, if it's a scary poem, I know you had a scary poem contest. Yes. At the mall, so, if that's your uh, that's your goal is to create some jump scares or create this feeling of dread in your stomach, if you reread that poem. and you've got that feeling of dread right where you wanted to, um, then I think it's mostly done. I think you've done your job. I think the poem is successful. But if it doesn't give you that feeling, or you feel like it's missing something, then I think that's your cue to give it another go. Revise. See where it's going wrong. See what you can tweak. Try those different forms. See where you can play with empty space and use fresher words or something um, in the editing process so
0: yeah I think uh, building on that uh, thought reading your poetry a lot first of all is critically important when I was interviewing Olivia Gatwood she couldn't emphasize enough that read if you have no one to read your poetry to, read in the mirror, and then just grab a family member or friend. I just find opportunities you know it's not like I'm reading more a piece. I'm literally asking for 90 seconds of attention. It's a really, really lightweight. So whenever I have the opportunity, I read poetry out loud because then you really test it, and I get a sense of when a poem is done. When I look forward to reading it, that's a good signal. And when I'm reading it, my mind isn't tweaking it on the fly. Now, there is a risk of overworking a poem, just like overworking dough, and it doesn't come out well. But for the most part, I find if I read the poem and I'm excited to read it and I just get into the joy of reading it, then that's a really good sign that the poem is edited to the point where it's not worth editing it anymore. Um, another way to, to know when it's done or to make it done is just to submit it somewhere, and then a version of your poem is out there, <laughs> and you've you kind of forced it. Um, I think that some other things is uh, feedback, super important, so I think we should both talk about this one. So I'm part of a critique group, and I actually have a poetry coach, believe it or not. I hired a, uh, a good friend of my older daughter's who was a USC theater grad and also could. Competes in poetry competitions. He's a, star- he's a starving artist, so I'm happy to help him out. And uh, every month or so, I we meet and I give him a couple of poems and he critiques them. And he's very, very actively feedback, direct, ra- radical candor type of feedback. It's awesome. And I'm part of a critique group too. The one thing I will say about critique: you have to be a little cautious not to be, not to just be to allow yourself to be pulled in any direction that the feedback takes you, because sometimes you're gonna disagree with the feedback, that's okay. Um, but I think it's really hard to write really, really good poetry consistently without some kind of feedback loop, whether that's a family member you really trust or a critique group or a combination. So how, how does feedback and editing play a role
1: in your work? I have a love-hate relationship with feedback. <laughs> As an artist, you desperately need it. But for me, the danger is it it takes your confidence away. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, no, it's not that great. Or, oh, no. like. Or a bad thing is, like, someone could say something that you really take to heart. And so you're, like, every time, even if the poem gets published, you're thinking of that comment. Like, I had an ex-boyfriend say something not so great about uh, a piece that I was working on. And I was, like, Darn it! I was so excited about it, and now I just like can't stop thinking about that like boring comment. Like, oh, it's boring. I'm just like, oh no! Like, it sucked enthusiasm <laughs> out. Um, so there is helpful th- feedback, and there's not so helpful feedback. Um, definitely, it's needed to see if a poem is successful. It's needed in order to get fresh ideas about your work. Um, but. I think you should stick to your guns if you fiercely believe in something. Yeah. No. So if if somebody in a writing group, for instance, um, takes away a word or says this word is not very effective, but you think that's your like favorite word and it gets you out of bed in the morning, being so excited to be like creating around this beautiful word in your poem, then keep your keep the word. Like you've got to stick to your vision because in the end, um, a poem. Is successful if you love it, if you're yeah. proud of it. That is the measure of success of a piece of art as an artist, not whether everybody in your writing circle or everybody in the world loves it. So stick, you know, stick to your vision. Um, I do have a story in college about a writing group that I was part of, and um, somebody super super great writer, gave me such great feedback, but he really didn't like this piece that I wrote and he kind of rejumbled it and thought it should go a different direction. And I was just like, I'll edit it, but first I'm just going to submit it and see what happens. You know, that putting the pen down, just submitting it, putting it out there um, moment. And it was my first poem that was ever published. And I was like, see, it was like a really big lesson early in my writing career of like You know, sometimes these things are just really subjective. Yes. You just don't know. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. His feedback wasn't wrong or bad. My poem wasn't wrong or bad. It's just two beautiful ways of looking at something. And you get to pick. You get to pick which beautiful way you want to look at the world through this piece of art.
0: Yeah, and I think that that, the key piece of feedback you should not listen to is whether or not your poem was accepted for publication. A rejection is feedback you should pay no attention to because the the rejection rate is like 98%. So if you listen to feedback from whether or not it got published, you'll be doubting everything you do. That's one thing. The other thing is in the critique group I'm part of, the rule we follow religiously is two-thirds positive feedback, one-third critical actionable feedback. So if you're going to give feedback, it has to be something that the, the poet can do something with. It can't be, here's an extreme example. No one in our group would say this, but I just need you to write better. You know, that that's not feedback. You can, no one in our group would say that, but that's the kind of thing you can't do anything with that. Um, you could now actionable feedback is, you know, I read this and I was a little confused when I got to this part. I wasn't quite sure what you're trying to say. All right. That's useful. That's useful. It may be something that you've intended. It may be something that is only applied to that reader. Um, but yes, you have to be careful with feedback. The other little thing I'll, I'll sprinkle in again from the A. Stallings I interviewed her. Her now she doesn't do this all the time, but she said she knows uh, when a poem a poem is uh, done. She takes whatever she's written and then chops off the last two lines. Uh, now of course she doesn't do that all the time. However, I have done that more than once where there's a there's a Point of overwriting the ending and it's better to leave poetry with a little bit of openness. So I've done things where I couldn't get the ending right and then I realized I do have the ending right. It's two lines earlier or three lines earlier and I just chop off the bottom and uh, poof, I was just trying to wrap it up too neatly and that's not what poetry does. So that, that is a useful exercise. Another thing that can be very useful, and I think Morgan you mentioned this before, if you're really struggling with a poem, make a copy of it or even start from scratch, write a parallel thing. So you still got the original and then uh, do another version and just read both of them. See which one is more fun which one do you want to read more uh, is usually a good test. All right. When is it all done? I think we've talked about that. Uh, we talked about feedback. Um, reciting what you've written. All right. If, uh, if we won't be able to see you, maybe you can wave, raise your hand if reciting what you've written just terrifies you. As, you know, not not in front of the mirror, maybe that terrifies you too, but in front of family or public.
1: Or let us
0: know in the comments. Yeah, let us know in the comments. You know, is this something that you absolutely get fearful of, of reciting your poem in front of friends, family, and public? Um, Certainly me, especially a year ago. Yeah, it's, it's still scary. So, so Morgan, how do, you, how, do you, how do you approach that challenge of reciting your poetry? How's that different?
1: Oh gosh, um, reciting your poetry live in front of people is like this big scary cliff and I just push myself off of it. <laughs> There's a quote um, that says, feel the fear and do it anyways. Do it anyways. Be like, I'm scared, but I'm still going to go to this open mic. And I'm going to shake while I read my poem, but I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be proud of myself afterwards. And then the next time I go to read at that open mic, I'll shake just a little bit less. And then the next time a little bit less until I get the hang of it. So I, I really believe in just going and actually doing it, actually reading your work. And that's the way that you get over those nerves. And that's the way you get better too, because through experience, you can learn how to read the audience and see what's going on. Do they like this? Do they get bored at some point? Um, It's really, really helpful to um, be able to hone your reading style.
0: And I think that there are two versions and Olivia Gatwood does, who's a wonderful performance poet. I certainly recommend you seek out uh, her, her on YouTube, her poem girl after A Lemon uh, wonderful poem period, but her performance is just spectacular. She's a really good she, she was a uh, poetry slam computer and then she became more traditional poet and just her, her performance is wonderful. Uh, so something you can you can really learn from her. And uh, so I think learning, watching really good performance poets is 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 good. But she was in her interview. She said she was very introverted. It was not natural to her to perform her poetry. It's a skill you learn. So if you don't feel confident performing your poetry, that's a starting point for everybody. It's a skill you learn. And uh, and when I was uh, I, I hired this poetry coach. I spoke of the initially to teach me how to perform my poetry because I I could tell it was just awful. Um, and I will read, I wasn't going to read but I think I'll, I'll read one, like an example of this that I think pulls out a couple points and it's, it's just a poem that I love to perform. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. I think it conveys it's a, it's a universal thing, but it also, there's a specific insight that I got from my poetry coach that this really brought out. So this is called Crush. Teen week at Foxwood Inn. I'm 15 scrawny, bookwormed and shy. She arrives so tall, her rich brown curls waving a smile dazzling and confident. The crush envelops me, its weight taking my breath away. As she turns the corner, there is no time to say hi, and I fear being caught staring too long. Each morning after breakfast, I peek over my paperback, waiting for her to pass by. And if her eyes catch mine, I shrink and blush, my heart crushed. And racing. Later, by the dock, the jocks show off their running shirtless headlong dives while I sit silently on a fading Muskoka chair, tucking my book under a towel, avoiding splashes. When the last night comes, her name a mystery still, with Stairway to Heaven's sorrowful intro begun, I crush fear, walking towards her, extending my hand, offering a dance. She looks me in the eye and quietly nods, no, and takes the dance floor with one of the diving boys. I walk in the darkness across dew damp grass down to the end of the dock, sitting, legs swinging, toes caressing the still cool lake, Robert Plant echoing in the distance. Between chords, I hear footsteps. She's there, her hand on my shoulder, a tear sliding down my cheek. I like you, James but just as a friend sitting down beside me as the song ends. I feel the crush as my imagined first kiss drifts away with the ripples beneath my feet, but in time smile, eyes closed and dry, replaying her saying my name. Crush. All right, now that poem, when I first read it for my poetry coach, it was a train wreck, it was terrible, I was just, and he had this critical insight that is so valuable. He first asked me, "Where's the turn?" And I thought about it. And I go, "Oh, it's when, when I when she turns me down for the dance." And he and then he made this insight that stuck with me since then. The reader and especially the listener has no idea whether or not she's going to say yes to the to the dance. So you can plant whatever seed you want. So when I read it, I'm intentionally setting it up like maybe she said yes because the reader doesn't know. And I used to be telegraphing that she was going to say no too soon. And uh, that was something that was a skill I had to learn. It was not something I did intuitively because I knew the poem so well. I forgot that the reader and the listener doesn't know the poem. They're just hearing or reading it for the first time. So I think that was the takeaway. The other thing he, he, he recommended was marking up the poem Uh, with um, extra punctuation that helps you remember where you want to do intentional pauses and things. And actually doing that is really valuable. So uh, Morgan, what's kind of your, how do you prepare for a reading of a poem?
1: Yeah, so I do exactly that. I mark up the page to make sure I emphasize the words or create more of a pause and really soak that moment in. Um, So I have a special copy of this book that um, is just my reading book because it has all of my <laughs> little markings in there, um, and it also helps to have handwritten at the end of each poem where I've read it. So I know you and I do a lot of open mics, especially a lot of virtual open mics, and so I don't want to read the same poem in the same audience, like the you know the next month. And I can't, I can barely remember what I had for breakfast this morning. I can't remember what poem I read. So I'll say, you know, read this at such and such open mic on this date um, in the actual book. So it's all in one place. And, um, oh, I had a thought about earlier um, our discussion on it being scary. um, Because let's validate that it is kind of scary to read in front of people. Something that might be helpful is to go slow and first read in front of someone that you trust. Like your mother. Is supposed to like love you unconditionally so even if you crash and burn she'll still clap um so that might be something that can help ease you into it find one safe audience member to read once you get more comfortable there grab your whole family or grab some neighbors grab some friends and work your way up to Mm your spotlight on the stage instead of maybe throwing yourself off the cliff like i did to myself you
0: don't have to do that to yourself. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the best way to get better, and it's an example of something, The best way to get better at reciting poetry is to recite poetry, engage the audience. There so there's really no shortcut to that, is the more you do it, the better you get. And getting feedback from people. I, I, uh, I got feedback from some good friends of mine that said, you know what, you're rushing the beginning of your poems and I, I have to run to catch up. And I'm like, ooh. So I'll put right down in my book, slow down, um that happens a lot of things nerves speed you up and then you settle back down uh so it's a it's a challenge to settle down right at the beginning another uh friend i spoke to memorizes the first stanza or two so their mind is caught up on the remembering and that just naturally slows them down and gets them focused on that so there are a lot of tricks but if you feel nervous another thing. my mother my parents are both retired professional musicians my mom uh said the day you're not more nervous before a performance is the day you should retire. So about 15 minutes before this started, I was texting uh Morgan to say butterflies <laughs> are arriving uh, because of this. Yes, yeah. it's natural. It is totally natural. Yeah. So uh let's move on to you know the core of what this is all about. You're, you we said this writing publisher writing poetry. So submitting your poetry and and getting it published in a variety of ways. Like, once uh, do you, Morgan, start us up again and how to approach it. I think you have a ton of awesome advice on this.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh, this is such a big topic. But I think uh, the best thing is to just submit your poem. And you can always revise it later. You can always change the title later, but just get it out there into the world. If you think it might be ready, submit it. You have nothing to lose. Send it to a few publishers. And, um, when you send a poem out into the world, I would expect for you to send it out many, many, many times. That is very, very typical. Um, it is truly, truly a numbers game because the acceptance rate is so low. Some journals have a 0.02% acceptance rate. Like that's a really mm-hmm. thick. And... Even if you have amazing work, even if they love your poem, they still might not be able to accept it because of the spacing in it or because of the theme of it or because they have another poem that's very similar or it's just not the right thing for this issue. It's not a spring poem and they want to put it in the spring issue or something like that. You just don't have control over all of that. So you just have to submit it and have good faith that in a year or two, (laughs) sometimes maybe even five years, sometimes maybe even a decade, someone will love it. Someone somewhere will be like, we have to have this poem for our journal. It will happen. You just have to be tenacious and keep going. I think I told a story on our last class that a poem took years, like years to get picked up. And I was tenacious and I was like no this is still good even though I've been submitting it for five years now I'm still gonna keep going and it was placed and you just have to believe in your work enough and it's so hard once you get that rejection to keep going but dust yourself off keep submitting it it will pay off
0: he just, uh, it's, it's so much of it comes down to timing. There's an element of luck to it. There's an element of you, what you control. What you can control is where you submit it to. What you can control is the quality of your submissions. What you can't control is who else happens to be submitting at that point. Uh, as Morgan said, there could be maybe for whatever reason, a whole bunch of people submitted about in a similar type of style or topic and, and the publication wants a diversity of styles and themes. and and they've already got a bunch of that and it has nothing to do with the quality of work. In fact, I think it rarely has anything to do with the quality of work. Uh, it has to do with things beyond your control. That's why it's still no fun getting a rejection. I, I you know, It is no fun getting a rejection. However, it is definitely, I find it less, much less affecting it did early on because I realized that uh, it, it, it doesn't really reflect on the quality of the work. I've had a poem that was rejected that was later, Turned into a 10 minute piece of music for baritone and piano and the composer just fell in love with it. And then that same poem was picked up by Beyond Words magazine six months later. If I had paid any attention to the first rejection and just said, oh, this is no good, what a mistake. I wouldn't have had that set to music and formed at the Presidio in San Francisco. I wouldn't have had it placed in Beyond Words. It was the same poem, it just it fit The lock fit the key, the key fit the lock better for those other opportunities. So just keep at it. It's a numbers game. A tactical thing that Morgan taught me that's been, I'm I'm convinced got placed, a poem placed, was how you title your poem. So before I boil your punchline there, talk to me about what you taught me about titling poems.
1: Yeah. So the title is one of the most important things about a poem. Because if you think about it, A literary journal has a table of contents, and someone will flip to your poem or pass it by in the table of contents based on the title. If the title grabs them, they're gonna flip to page 43 and read it. And also, when an editor is looking at whether to publish your piece or not, that's the first thing that they see, and they're considering that too. They wanna get clicks if it's an online journal, they want to get people excited about the journal if it's a print journal, and so the title just has to grab you. It's the first hook. So for me, I see a lot of work and I can fall into this trap too, where a title will be something descriptive about the poem. Like a a poem about flowers will be titled flowers or tiger lilies or something like that. And I think that is doing a disservice to your poem because that doesn't grab you. That doesn't really pull you in. But if it's a poem about flowers, and this is a real example that I saw somewhere a month ago, and I still remember the title um, because it grabbed me that much. It, your title could be biting the heads off of all the marigolds in spring. Mm-hmm. I still remember that. Um, it was something like that. And it's just, it sticks with you because it's such a visual title and it's so unusual. So just think of your title as a hook instead of a description, and that will take you so much farther.
0: And I was not good at this. I wasn't even paying attention to this really. Uh, And uh, Morgan made this comment, and then I re-looked at a bunch of poems and pulled some of them down and replaced them. And a great example that got placed in Prometheus Dreaming, which is a cool online journal, I had a poem that was called Stage Fright, very functional title, it was reflective of the poem. The poem didn't change, but I changed the title to that time I was left for dead downstage. Same exact poem. Now, which would you rather read? The one that says stage fright or the one that says that time I was left for dead downstage? You know, I t- and the way you can test it is if you have two titles you're not sure, just ask friends and family, which of these two poems would you want to read? And just give the title and see which one. That's what uh, editors do in, in newspapers. The editor, the, the when there's a newspaper story, the writer, uh, the reporter doesn't write the headline. Experts in headlines, the editors write the headlines, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, so that's important. I'm noticing in a questionnaire, what journals do you recommend? So I think we both could answer this. I, I use a variety of techniques. You know, certainly looking through Submittable can be one approach. I think another approach I've used more recently is uh, I look at poetry books that I really respect, and I see where that poet has had their poetry placed because they've gotten to an, an, another level and uh and so i think of it as also partially kind of like um university applications you know back in the day i would do there's your reach schools like the new yorker or the parish review if you're only submitting your poetry there and they wouldn't allow you to submit that much per year you know you're taking your chance from one percent to point oh one percent so you want to have a spread of things, and uh, some things, some publications accept more, like Wingless, *Wingless Dreamer*. Some accept very little because of the volume of things they get, like *The Paris Review* and *The New Yorker*. And there's things in between. I think uh, so. Look at publications that you that, from uh, that from writers you respect. Also look at the types of things that they they accept. And and Morgan, you had great advice about how the cover letter once you've chosen a publication. But I think uh, share what you're, what you've learned about how you actually position your poem in addition to the title of the cover letter
1: well a cover letter should have your bio um, it should have something that makes you stand out to them i think i'm not sure exactly what you're.
0: oh you would say that you would actually like the, you would you would actually make a reference to the editor or a person or something that showed that you had taken a look at them right yeah. that that was the advice you gave yeah that it
1: takes um, There's so many things to talk about with cover letters. It's really important. You can live or die by your cover letter, truly. But I always take the time to address the cover letter to the particular poetry editor. So I go on the website for the literary journal. I look up the editor or editors and I address it to them because so many people have the um, just same cover letter for each journal. And because it's so time consuming to create all these different cover letters and send them out to 200 journals a year, But just taking that extra time, those extra minutes, the extra step to address it to the right editor, maybe customize it for the journal. If it's a Midwest journal, I'll say, I'm from the Midwest. Um, So they know that you took the time to craft the cover letter for them. And it's also likely that you took the time to craft the poetry package for them. So they might read your poetry package with a little bit more interest.
0: You know, I'm just going to do a couple extra thoughts and I want to make sure I leave time for Morgan to talk about a cool new service that she's going to offer. But another thing to do is just just like if you're applying for a job, make sure there's a that there's not a showstopper requirement. So if the publication, for example, is specifically for LGBTQ plus authors and that's not where you fit in, then, you know, you don't want that to be a showstopper. Or uh, if they if it's a publication specific for students of a particular university, you know, Submittable is used for all sorts of things. So just do a sanity check to make sure that there won't be some disqualifying thing about your submission before they even get to the poem. So with that, um, Morgan, why don't you take uh, kind of 30 seconds to talk about this cool new service that you're gonna be launching down the
1: road. Yes. so through these classes that we've done together, I realized that I have a real passion for teaching people how to take their poetry from something that they love to something that they share with the world through being able to publish it in all these journals and magazines. Uh, so many people have this as their life dream, to be a writer, and maybe part of my dream is to help you accomplish that. So I'm going to start filming my own little master class on poetry writing, and it takes you through the world of poetry, giving some context about that, how to write a poem, like we've been talking today, how to publish a a poem. I'm gonna have writing exercises. I'm gonna have Excel spreadsheet templates for you to use for your publishing, because that helps you keep track of what poems you've sent where. I'm gonna have a list of all the poetry journals that I use, and I've curated this list over so many years. So (laughs) it has a lot of information on it. Yeah, so I've got my curriculum written, and I just need to sit down and actually film it. So if that sounds like something you might be interested interested in, feel free to give me a follow here on Instagram, Um, and I'm going to push out information through my Instagram about it. But you can also direct message me on Instagram if you want to get on the mailing list, and I'll add your email when it finally launches i so excited.
0: Very cool. Very excited about that, Morgan. And yes, Morgan referred to, we did another Instagram live that is available as a podcast episode and also on YouTube. Uh, This will also go out on YouTube. Uh, The other thing is uh, through Viewless Wings uh, Poetry Podcast, once a month or so, I have a compiled episode of submitted poetry. And the thing that I'm doing that I think is kind of cool and unique is I'm not just publishing the poems on the website, which a lot of people do. I'm having the poets perform their poems and so that they can be part of a podcast episode. So the next one of those comes out next week. There's roughly one a month. The best of the contributions get performed by the poets pulled together into an episode so uh, which I don't know if there's any other podcasts that do that quite frankly off submission. So if you're interested in that, you go to viewlesswings.com and uh, there's a submission button or you're on Instagram now so we can buy them. You can go check that out. Um, with that mandatory, that Morgan and I hold up our books. Nope. Please consider purchasing our books. Running Gang, Canvas, and
1: very fun and running.
0: All available in all the usual places. It's been uh, we've had uh, we've had a ton of people just stay the entire time. That's super exciting. If you know people that missed it, I'm going to go reshare this on YouTube as well as on the Beal Swings Poetry Podcast. Morgan, it's always awesome talking to you. I hope for folks that were on that I see lots of hearts and other things that you enjoyed and learned something today. And Morgan, any closing thoughts?
1: Thank you, everybody, for joining. This is truly the highlight of my week, probably the highlight of my month. So you make this possible by being willing to learn and have this discussion with us. So I appreciate you.
0: Absolutely. That too. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: thanks, James. Thank you.
0: Bye. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch. Subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.